Several months ago, I began a series on the biblical worldview and the biblical mindset. Got through most of that, but got to the point where we were going to begin to talk about the biblical um, worldview and mindset in terms of the content and how to express that to our children. Um, I want to remind you the biblical worldview is how God sees the world, and it is the biblical worldview that the scriptures are written from that context. The mindset is our individual commitment to be humble before God, to, to commit ourselves to follow God, and, uh, and to, to trust Him and obey Him. Uh, and those things are important. The, the worldview of God uh, comes through the people of God, that is the children of Israel. There's a historic narrative for that, which is the covenants of God. There is a language of it, which is Hebrew, and even the Greek Gospels are written from a Hebraic mindset. The culture and religion of Judaism is really, and of Israel itself, is a culture that is created by God to contain that. And the land of promise, the Holy Land, is part of that narrative as well. So if we don't keep that central to our interpretation of the Scriptures, if we kind of do a de facto replacement you know, and make God an American, and Jesus born in Oklahoma, and, and uh, you know, this is the new promised land. We kind of create a, uh, a replacement theology that, that skews our understanding of the word. A few weeks ago, I uh, talked about the uh, content of the spiritual reality that is eternal, the cognitive reality that is about meaning and material reality of the creation that are really temporal, this present world, both its, its cognitive structures and its uh, physical makeup will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth after this one is restored to the full intent of God's purpose. And then uh, we talked about truth, the biblical revelation. I hope that you are reinforcing in your children that the only truth that we have is the Word of God and the, uh, the person of Jesus. It's very easy in a world that is postmodern for kids to grow up believing that truth is a matter of opinion. Is that what you think? Yeah, it's the truth. Now, something may be true in the English word sense, but it's not truth in the biblical worldview sense if it's not the biblical text or it's not the person of the Lord Jesus. Uh, so, today I want to talk about uh, how we uh, operate in that worldview, and I want to talk specifically about what I call the triplets of the faith. These are uh, really foundational principles that you should know and have reinforced, and that you should know and reinforce them in your children, uh, and that requires an enormous amount of reinforcement in a culture that they live in now. When I was growing up uh, in a non-Christian home, in a non-Christian family, it was still possible for me to have biblical values inculcated into me because the policeman and the school teacher and the neighbor down the block all believed those things. Even non-believers kind of held to Christian values. But the world has changed, at least this culture has changed, so much so that even the church 
is not necessarily holding biblical values, let alone the world around them. And your children and your grandchildren are growing up in an environment that we can't imagine uh, growing up in. I see it pretty close up and a lot of it doesn't make sense to me. So I want to talk about three things. They were, they were mentioned in the text that we just had. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Paul says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I want to talk about faith, I want to talk about hope, and I want to talk about love, because these three concepts are an integral part of the biblical worldview. And a deviation from the biblical understanding of these terms will cause us to be more like the world. And I think that that problem is plaguing the church at the present time. And to a lesser extent, though it's still there, we find it in Judaism and in the synagogues as well. So I'm going to begin with the concept of hope. There are about four words in the, in the Hebrew language that are translated into Greek in the Septuagint and are used in the sense of uh, hope. What they actually mean is the idea of waiting for something or someone. So if I'm waiting for an event to happen, or I am waiting for someone to show up that I am expecting, I have an expectation, that waiting in expectation is what the word hope is in a biblical foundational framework. So, uh, important that we understand that. Now, that's translated, those words are translated into a Greek word, uh, elpis, which means hope or expectation. And then, of course, translated by Bible translators from the Hebrew and the Greek into the English word hope. But the English word hope has baggage that is not in the Hebraic word um, and is not in the, the Hebraic understanding of the Greek text. Um, so hope is an expectation which is not yet happened, but for which we wait. And that expectation is an event that is actually promised and involves trust of the one who has promised that hope. Now that's important, because hope is not an expectation of something that we desire or hope to happen. We, do, we use that in English all the time. Students are always saying, I hope, I'm hoping to get an A in this class. Okay? Well, that hasn't been promised. <laughs> and it's certainly not certain. Okay? That's just a desire on their part. Uh, if I can coin the Disney term, a dream is a wish your heart makes. A hope is a wish your heart makes. You know, when you're fast asleep. <laughs> In other words, it's not based on anything. Okay? So the idea of that hope, and that's what we all use the word more often for, is not the biblical concept. So it's important when you and your children and your grandchildren see the biblical term hope in an English translation, that what we're talking about is something that has been promised and therefore depends on the trustworthiness of the person while you wait. So if somebody who's always telling you something that's not true, 
I will see you at 2 o'clock. And this person is always late. How do you wait for that person? Loosely, right? I'm going to go do this because they're not going to be back. But if that person says something and their word is a bond, then you're going to act in a way that anticipates and waits for that hope. That's the biblical concept. And of course, the person who makes the promises is God. Uh, So, a promise is not made by one uh, who is trustworthy. There really is no hope. That's just an empty promise. There is only a wish. And too many people wish for things and say, I'm, I'm, I'm believing God for this. Well, what has God said about that? If He hasn't said anything, you don't have a hope. You may have a prayer, but you don't have a hope. Okay? So, we wish for things and use the word hope as in, I hope this will happen. I hope you'll be able to do this. That kind of expectation is based on our desire. It may or may not come true, depending on circumstance, because those things are beyond our control. But that is not a biblical hope. A biblical hope is the expectation must be a promise from God who is trustworthy. And we wait on Him and on the promised hope. So the words for hope that you won't see much in the Old Testament are usually translated, wait upon the Lord. Well, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the Lord to do what you want? Or are you waiting for the Lord to do what He's promised? We wait for the Lord to do what He's promised. I'm going to give you a couple of examples so you can see the difference in that context. And it's perfect in this congregation because it's about babies. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 29, and I'm going to go through the beginning of Genesis 12. By the way, this is the, uh, the uh, Torah reading uh, portion that is coming up this next Sabbath. Uh, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah. And Iska. Sarai was barren. She had no child. So Avram, who becomes Abraham, and Sarai, who becomes Sarah, is said here to be uh, a barren woman. Uh, and so it says that Terah t- took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter in law his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. And there they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now we get the story. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, uh, Avram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to a land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Avram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Avram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, 
and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, they set out for the land of Canaan. They were, and they came to the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to know that I am sure that Avram, when he married Sarai, wanted children. And she wanted children. So they had the wish, but they had no hope. And at the time when the promise comes, Avram is 75 years old. Not likely to have a child. And the promise that is made by the one who is trustworthy is going to take a while because they're going to be in their 90s when the promise comes true. Because the promise doesn't depend on them hoping for it, but the promise becomes their hope because the one who promised is faithful. You get that? That's the biblical concept of hope. Our hope is that which God has promised, not that which we desire. Another example of that in the New Covenant uh, writings, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Baha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in age. Beginning to see a pattern here. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of the division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at the, incense, at the hour of the incense offering. So that's nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. Not sure which one it was. Zachari- uh, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. So Zechariah is standing here and to the right of the altar... Zechariah's left, but to the right of the altar, an angel appears inside the holy place. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. <laughs> no kidding. No one else is supposed to be in there. Right? Uh, now, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in age. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this gospel. 
And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when the thing takes place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now you know this story. How much does this hope depend on the faith of Zacharias? Zilch. The promises of God are given by He who will fulfill them. And whether you believe them or not, they will take place. So we read the scriptures to know the promises of God that we may trust Him. But even if we don't trust Him, it doesn't make God impotent to do what He says He's going to do. But it's preached and taught that if you don't believe, it won't happen. Zechariah didn't believe, and it happened. Every time Jesus said to the disciples, O ye of little faith, he worked a miracle. He doesn't have to work a miracle for those who trust him. But he keeps his promises. So, the hope is a hope based on the promise of God, not the faith of the person who is hoping for something. So whether you believe it or don't believe it, the promise is true. So the notion of hope in the Bible is to wait in expectation on the promises of God. We cannot hope what is not promised. As a result, we must be mindful that the hope is in the God who promises. And the promise of God is found and revealed in the scriptures, not in our fleshly minds. Those who claim God has given them a promise are trusting their experience, not the Word of God. And the focus of Judaism and Christianity is that the Word of God is the Scriptures and therefore where we get our hope. And, and that's why it's important that we read the biblical text. I have uh, two little passages I want to uh, read with you. One is Psalm 130. Uh, I want us to look at that in the context of what I've just said uh, so that you can see that that is uh, uh, the biblical context here. Out of the depths, depths I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. That's that word. My soul does wait. I am hoping in the Lord. I am waiting on God is what he's saying. And in his word do I hope. Not in my desire. In his word. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Boy, if you have ever done an all-nighter watch, you are waiting for that morning to come. You know it's coming. But it takes forever when you're watching for it. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. How do we know that? Because God promised it. God spoke a promise, and that promise becomes the hope of Israel. Those promises become the hope of those who fear Him and trust Him. Romans chapter 8.
Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The the restoration of this creation is based on a promise of God that he said he is going to do it. And therefore, we can hope in that. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly, waiting eagerly for the hope. What is that hope? The adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, last week, we did the funeral of Linda's aunt. And as they lowered her casket into the ground, just on the the raw morning of our one-year anniversary with Braden, and we reached into the bucket of dirt and handed that dirt down onto the casket in sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. Not flying away and being up there in some harp and, and thing, but a resurrection in this life to justify everything that God's promised. Our hope was reinforced. It's not a hope based on, I, I wish this will happen. It's a hope based on the promise of God. We wait for the adoption of sons. But in, for in hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? The promises aren't here yet. And the circumstances mock the promise. But we trust the one who promised because he is faithful. For if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it to come. You see that biblical concept of hope? Really important. You need to understand it. Your children need to understand it. So, we move on to faith. The Hebrew words for faith tend to mean trust. Or to have something confirmed by someone. These words are translated mostly in the Old Testament by hope, not by faith. In the biblical sense of believing or trusting a promise by one who is trustworthy. Or by the Greek word pistis, which means a trust or a reliance on a person or a statement. You cannot have faith in something that is not a promise. You can only wish. You can only suppose. You can only speculate. It's the same problem. Hope and faith work together. God speaks. That is our hope. We trust that God will do what He says. I don't believe in order for God to promise. I believe because God has promised, or as the Scripture says... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, faith then is to trust the Word of someone, because the one speaking is trustworthy. 
Faith doesn't make something happen. Faith doesn't make the promise come true. We've already seen that in the other two passages. But what faith does is it sustains us in the certainty of what is done. So the person who doesn't believe, the promise will still happen, but you'll ride the roller coaster. Zacharias. The one who holds in faith and trusts that God will keep his word, even when the circumstances are denying all of that, will remain stable. So the faith issue benefits you. It doesn't bring about the the promise. Though that's what's taught. So I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 39 of chapter 10, Paul, uh, or the writer here, is talking about a faith and a trust of one who in the midst of difficulties hangs on and says that there are those who give up and there are those who hang on to the believing and the salvation of the soul. He says, we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Then he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The King James says, substance of that which is hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The idea here is that faith is, the, is what we have Until what is promised becomes ours. So why would you give up the faith in the hope and the one who promised? Because all that you can have then is fear. It is faith that trusts the promise when everything looks like the promise will not take place. That is the essence of the biblical notion of faith. And it's one of the reasons why... Uh, when the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith, he said, you don't need your faith increased. If you have faith of a mustard seed, if, you're, if you believe what God has said, you believe what God has said. We've got to work up Got to work up my faith. That's all nonsense. We're working up the feeling of faith, not the trust of the one who's promised. And so, faith is trusting in, in, uh, of the thing that's promised and therefore hoped for. And we have the faith until we have the hope. But it's also the evidence of things unseen. Well, what is unseen? The promiser. We have a promise from one who is unseen. And our faith in that promise is what we have until the promise comes. And by faith, we trust that the one who promised is in fact there. To be intellectually honest, you have to say, God may not exist. Or if God exists, this may not be his word. I'm absolutely convinced that God is. And that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I believe that because I have poured over these texts 
for years and years and years. And I have seen God faithful in that. And I am amazed at the detail and the reality of this text and what's done. And so I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed against that day. I know that. Okay? Now there are times when I go, Lord, how much of this can I take? But, I, but I, even that is a statement of faith. One of my favorite passages is the response to Jesus when he asks a man if he believes. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I don't see that as a, as a lack of faith. I see that as the struggle of faith. Faith is a struggle to stay connected to the promises and the one who promised while we wait expectantly and earnestly for those things to happen. And that's not a layaway Christianity. I said the magic words and now I get to go to heaven when I die. It is a thing that sustains you every day. And it will sustain you when a job is lost. It will sustain you when a doctor gives a bad report. It will sustain you in the open grave of a loved one. And your own grave. And nothing else will sustain that. So as Romans says... uh, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we trust it and the God who gave it. And it becomes the substance, if you will. It becomes uh, the hope until we have the hope. And it becomes the evidence that God really is there. So, the faith is in God, however, not in the promise. If you get your eyes on the promise and you start looking for the promise to happen, you take your eyes off God. And when you take your eyes off God, you act strange. So when Sarah and Abraham took their eyes off God, who said, I will give you a son, they tried to help God out. Have you ever tried to help God out? So they came up with the first church growth program called the Hagar Plan. Right? We have a formula now whereby we can justify God. Like God needs us to work it out so that people will go, then your God is God. And so, as I've said before, I would have given them a daughter. God gave them a son. And for a while, they continued to cling to that self-fulfilled promise. Boy, does the church try to fulfill the promises of God on our own. And you know what it does? It creates doubt. Because if you know you did it, and then you want to say, praise the Lord, then you go, well, maybe I did it, right? So God waits until it's virtually impossible for them to do it, and then they finally get the child, and then God wants to know, do you trust me? Is your faith in me, or is your faith in the promise? And we see that in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 says this. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here here I am. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now God had already made him get rid of the other kid. 
Ishmael's gone. So he has one son. This is the promise. And I've waited a long time for this promise. So God says, take this promise that you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now verse 3 says, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two young men and Isaac his son, split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place where God told him. And on the third day, Abraham uh, raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. I don't know what happened in this context. I don't know to what extent Abraham had now become fully capable of trusting God. And it's likely that he did. But there is a version of this story that is done in a movie where George C. Scott plays Abraham. And I love that film. Because God says these words to him, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. And George C. Scott, as Abraham comes out of the tent, No! You know how his voice is. No! I've waited so long for this promise. Are you really the Lord my God? Man, I can identify with that. Man, when I became a Christian, everybody told me my life would turn great. And my life has not turned great. There have been great things in my life. But I have seen pain and sorrow and suffering like I never thought I would see. Is he really the Lord my God? And the answer comes back in the movie. Thou knowest. Wow. You know me. So when I face difficulties and things that I don't think are going to keep my soul together, and I say, God, are you there? Are, you, are your promises good? I hear God say through His Word, Thou knowest. I don't hear a voice, but I get it. Take the promise and kill it. And Abraham knows God. And he knows that this God who promised this boy, if necessary, will bring him back to life because God will keep his word no matter what. And the book of Romans says exactly that. And Jewish tradition says that Isaac died and Abraham came back alone. And three days later, Isaac was alive. Now that's legend. It's Jewish legend, not Christian legend. Wow. So I want you to look at James chapter 1. Okay, who took my James? There he is. James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I always thought that if I trusted God and had faith in His promises, that my life would simply work out good. 
But circumstances will mock those promises. They will drive you to the question, do I trust him or do I not? Now, funny as it seems, it's easier to trust God for our eternal salvation than for the problems of today. And you know that. Because we don't really believe in the eternal salvation. I mean, we believe in it, but it's, it's over there somewhere, right? I got to deal with this today. And that's where we must wait on the Lord by faith. And that's how hope and faith work together. And so James says, you let those things come and in them you faith towards God. Now there are days when I can't do that. I can't act on my faith. I'm going to talk about that next time. Acting on our faith. Acting according to our faith. But there are days when I can't do it. And those are the days when I've learned to face the promise if I can't walk towards it. And if I can, I'll lean towards it to make some manifestation in this flesh that I believe God. So biblical faith is an abiding trust of God through His Word that trusts what God has said when it cannot be seen, and about what He has promised when it's not yet expressed, and when everything and everybody is saying, it ain't going to happen. So that leaves us with love. What's love got to do with it? The Hebrew word for love is ahava, and it is related to the word in Greek, Agape or agapeo, which is in the Greek language but wasn't used quite as much as we find it used in uh, the Judeo-Christian writings. It's the primary term for love in the New Testament. The biblical meaning is a committed devotion to the good of another, whether to God or to man. It is not affection. That's also found in the scriptures, and we are told to be kindly affection one towards another, but that's not Christian love. Christian love, or biblical love, or Hebraic love, is to have the ability to do something for someone in need, and at your expense, provide that need. Now, you can do that with someone you don't like. Because biblical love is not an emotion, nor is it a feeling. It's an action, and it requires that the person provide to the benefit of another something that actually costs him. So let me give you some brief text for that. God so loved the world that he, what's the word? Gave his son, right? Cost him for our benefit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. John and Jacob both, uh, James both say, How do you say the love of God dwells in you? If you see a brother or sister naked and destitute of daily food and you don't give to them. So if you want a word for the word love, it is give. The three great commandments. Give yourself mind, body, and strength to God. 
Give to your neighbor as you give to yourself. A new commandment I give you. That you give to one another as I have given to you. That's what we need to teach our children and our grandchildren and ourselves. That love is. Love is giving. Now, it's giving to somebody who has the need, not because we like them. Therefore, if your enemy thirsts, give him a drink. If he's hungry, feed him, Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You don't do this to the ones who do it to you. If you love those who love you, what reward is that? I have a friend, and we used to, uh, every time there was a Dodger-Giant game, uh, we would... uh, uh, We would go out to eat and argue about which team was better. And we developed a process of when it's his birthday, I take him to lunch. And when it's my birthday, he takes me to lunch. We always go to the same place and have the same thing. So what are we doing? Nothing. Right? It, I'm just paying for mine a, a, a six months in advance, right? Or six months later. Okay? That's not biblical love. Biblical love is loving those who can't love you back. So that they will praise God. Let your light so shine that men see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, faith is trusting God to keep His promises. Hope are the promises of God. And love is to act on the benefit of another person at your expense. So Paul says, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. Well, why is the greatest of these love? Well, it's pretty simple. One day, the hope will be fulfilled. So the hope, the waiting, is temporary. One day, the trust in the one who promised, that faith will become sight. And there will be no more faith. Because faith is temporal. But love is eternal, for God is love. He loved us with a great love. He asks us to trust Him for the promises He gives, and then to love others, to manifest that we are His children. And so love will exist when the other two are gone. So love is the greatest. Now how do we do this? And how do we teach our children to do this in practical terms? As you see, I don't have time to do it today. So my plan is to talk about that next time. Let's pray.